This is the Workplace Podcast with your host, William Corliss, brought to you in association with Yellowwood, providers of executive coaching, corporate training and facilitation, your external learning and development partner. Each week, we focus on a different aspect of the workplace. We hear from guest speakers who are subject matter experts and are incredibly talented at what they do. These experts will give you a different perspective and insight to work life with the aim of empowering you to take a different path to success in all aspects of work life. These perspectives will include career and personal success, leadership, high performance teams and creating a better work life culture in your organization. Yellowwood, take a different path to success with your career, team and organization. This episode's guest is Dr. Ruth Godian. Ruth is the Chief Learning Officer and Assistant Professor of Education in Anesthesiology and former Assistant Dean of Mentoring and Executive Director of the Mentoring Academy at Weill Cornell Medicine. In 2021, she was selected as one of the 30 people worldwide to be named to the Thinkers 50 Radar List and recently won the Thinkers 50 Distinguished Achievement Radar Award ranking her the number one emerging management thinker in the world to bridge theory and practice. She is also a semi-finalist for the Forbes 50 over 50 list. In addition to publishing in academic journals, she is a contributor to the Harvard Business Review, Forbes and Psychology Today, where she writes about optimising success. Her research is about the mindset and skill set of peak performers, including Nobel laureates, astronauts and Olympic champions, which she writes about in her book, The Success Factor. Welcome to the Workplace Podcast. Joining us today is Ruth Gautian, and we're going to discuss her book, The Success Factor, developing the mindset and skill set for peak business performance. Ruth, you're very welcome to the Workplace Podcast. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. This is my way of traveling around the world with still having my slippers on. Excellent. And we're going to discuss high performance. Most of our listeners, I am sure, if they're listening to the Workplace Podcast, they already know what a high performer is Mm -hmm. or do they? So Mm. they might be relentless in their approach, but it's really about getting to the next level. And what I've discovered about your book is there's small key differences that high performers or high achievers have. So what would they be? There really are. And I'll just backtrack a little bit. I have been obsessed with success forever. And I knew that if we were going to, as a world, improve our success, I really had to learn the lessons from the best of the best. So I studied. And when I say I studied, I literally went back to school. I was 43 years old to get my doctorate and study this. And I study extreme high achievers. So these are the Nobel Prize winners and astronauts and Olympic champions to figure out how they became so successful so that we can reverse engineer it. And what I have learned is that much of what we have been taught or been told is not accurate. We have been told, wake up at 5 a.m. and read for eight hours a day and make your bed before you do anything else. Those are habits. But those habits are very difficult to keep going. But what I realized is that the astronaut 
is just like an Olympic figure skater. They do the same four things. And if that's the case, success can be learned. So I am here to teach it. So you ready? <laughs> oh, I am ready. And that's what I love about this book. It is full of anecdotes, examples. You have billionaires in there as well. So we'll go to that later on. So there's people going to be listening in here and they might be daunted or maybe feeling that sense of self-protection going on. I'm not sure if I can mm-hmm. learn success, as you were saying there. Can it be learned if someone was finding this daunting? What would you say to them? It absolutely can. This book is a blueprint. The success factor is a blueprint. And it's one that you can go back to and refer to often because there's always tweaks that you can make. And also what works for you now may not work for you later. So I don't just tell you what the Nobel Prize winners did, I actually teach you how to do it. And that was very important to me because while I can geek out talking about theory and research, most people want to know, tell me what I need to do. So that was really not just the big idea, but the actual plan of how to do it. For example, when I talk about all these high achievers tapped into their intrinsic motivation, that's the motivation that comes from within. It's not those diplomas, the awards, the medals, the prizes. That's called extrinsic motivation. That's when other people judge us. That is very short-lived. That's hard to maintain and sustain that motivation. But when it comes from within, that's the intrinsic motivation, that fire in the belly. And nobody, not under any circumstances, can put out that fire. That's that pilot light within you. So when I tell you need to tap into that intrinsic motivation, I then teach you as the reader how to do that. I take you through a passion audit. We learn about different ways for you to focus and get into a state of flow in order to maintain that intrinsic motivation. So that was so critical for me to do. And I loved reading that aspect of the passion audit. We're going to talk about that as well. It's a bit like you've been reading my notes. Did I email them in advance? (laughs) So when you were sitting on your car journey or commute this morning for two hours, I think I know you you hacked into my one note here. (laughs) That's it. So let's back up because there is a difference between someone who may have a fear of failure, then something might be holding them back. They might have limiting beliefs can I really be a success so I I would associate myself as being a late bloomer and then I really discovered that intrinsic motivation as you were talking about there so somebody is a fear of failure or if somebody is unsure about themselves what advice might you give our listeners here so the difference between these extreme high achievers and us regular mere mortals they fear not trying more than they fear failing They understand that failure is data. There's something I can learn from this. And sure, they may be set back for a little bit, but overall, they really want to succeed. And they say, what can I learn from this failure that happened? How can I adjust things? And they put themselves in control. Look, the only thing that cannot be brought back, the only mistake that's terminal is life itself. Everything else, every other mistake can be corrected. So with that in mind, and this is whenever I do book signings, this is what I scribble in the book is fear not trying more than you fear failing. Once you have that mindset, nothing can stop you. That is such a good message to our audience. 
And this was a really interesting aspect when you talked about the litmus test between a high achiever and a dreamer. Now, I love this because I think if I am very honest, I may have been a dreamer as a boy growing up and really didn't understand the difference of what it took then. So what are the mistakes that people might make of being a dreamer then? Yeah, so we talk about the difference between a dreamer and a high achiever. And it really boils down to a dreamer says, one day I'm going to do this, and one day I'm going to do that, and one day I'm going to achieve this. Where a high achiever doesn't talk about one day, but they make today day one. And they realize it's small incremental steps that will lead them towards achieving their goal. So they don't just talk about what they're going to do. They actually start doing it. And you don't just get that Olympic medal. It's first, let me get dressed and get to the weight room (laughs) and start working out. It's these little things on the way to the big achievements. That reminds me of that quote, the journey of a thousand miles started one step. And then you were in the book, then you talked about this two powers at play. There's the load of life and power of life. So introduce us to that because on the same page, then you have the theory of margins. And I love this because it, it is that that 1% type incremental approach. Yes. So this is actually part of adult learning theory. So my background is in adult learning and leadership. That's what I've studied and been trained in. And I was going to infuse adult learning theory to underscore everything that I'm teaching. So we all have different loads in our lives. We have a mortgage to pay. We have children to take care of. We have elder care that we need. We have our house to clean. We have food we need to make. Those are different pressures that we have in our lives. But we all have different abilities to handle that pressure, right? So the pressure is not different. It's what opportunities we have to handle it. So maybe I have more discretionary income to order takeout food or a housekeeper or a babysitter or whatever it is. And those types of things allow you to take on and learn new things because when you have so much pressure and you don't have any ability to take any of those stressors off, then you don't have the opportunity to learn new things. And we need to have a balance in our lives so that we can allow new information to come in. So if you think about it, when you're super stressed about something and the laundry has to get done and the kids are crying because they're hungry and you still have a deadline at work, not going to turn on a LinkedIn learning course and learn something new. Your brain just cannot handle anything new right now. You're in survival mode. So we have to find ways, if we can, to unload some of that. And that will allow us to learn new things, open our mind up to learning new things. I think that's such helpful advice because a lot of people might be listening in frustrated with their careers or really dreaming of a certain goal they want to pursue. And then there might be certain people then that they go, oh, how do I make space for this in, in my week? I was like, I have so much on. And this is why I say habits don't work. So when People say, wake up at 5 a.m. If you're a night owl and you're not going to bed till two or three, you're not waking up at five. So it's not about when you wake up. It's what you're doing during what I call your peak performance hours. And this is what high achievers learn how to leverage. They're not all waking up at 5 a.m., right? Some of them are definitely night owls, but they know what their peak performance hours are. 
And during that time, they do the work that requires the most focus. So for example, for me, I do a lot of writing and editing, and I am very much a morning person, which means unless it can be helped, I usually don't have Zoom meetings in the morning because that is passive. I do my writing and my editing in the morning when I am the most focused. So what I can get done in half an hour in the morning would take me three hours if I try to do it in the afternoon, because as the day goes on, I start getting slower and harder to maintain the focus. So you need to learn what are your peak performance hours and then leverage that. So don't waste your time with passive tasks, emails, social media, Zoom meetings during your peak performance hours. You, those times need to be holy on your calendar so that you can do that deep work and you will see your productivity will skyrocket if you do that. And that is how you will make time for other things. So say, for example, I do make time for other things. And I think a little bit of everybody has procrastination. I put stuff off. So I'm going to put off reading that book by my bedside locker. or I'm going to put off my exercising or my healthy eating, whatever it may be. What advice do you give to people on procrastination and dealing with that? Yeah. If you're procrastinating, there's a reason for it. Because if you loved it, it was part of your why, part of that passion, you wouldn't be procrastinating because you know that getting through that, blasting through that will get you to your goal. I was just coaching an Olympian who has two Olympic medals and he was going back to school and he's struggling. He said, it's not that it's hard. I just don't like writing those papers. And I said to him, I said, you have two Olympic medals. Doing hard things is not a challenge for you. You know how to do hard things. He's like, yeah, but I wanted that Olympic medal. I said, then you need to want this degree. And as soon as you want it, the way you wanted that Olympic medal, your whole outlook will change and you will just power through those papers. That created a shift because it was no longer about getting the paper. It was this paper is getting him closer to his goal of the degree, just the same way of working out in the weight room when you're tired and you're sluggish and you really don't want to, but he knows that would get him closer to his goal of an Olympic medal. It's the same idea. And you mentioned the passion audit a few times. So a couple of things on that, because I think that's where the big shift for me, when I was a late bloomer, it was is I found out what I was passionate about and I, I really started getting a real thirst for learning and all things learning and development related. So say, for example, I'm someone that has tried a few things or experimented a few things and just nothing's working out for me. What advice would you give to people or what isn't the passion audit that I could start doing? Yeah, so the passion audit differentiates between what you're good at and what you're not good at, what you enjoy doing and what you don't enjoy doing. And there are clues to help you figure out what those things are. And it's a simple three-column exercise. I talk about it a lot in the book, The Success Factor. It's also one of the resources you can download. But William, I've also added it to my website for your listeners so they can download it for free if they want to work on it. They could just go to my website, ruthgotian.com slash passion audit as one word. 
and they can download that three-column exercise. And again, this will help you differentiate between what you're good at, what you're not good at, what you enjoy doing, what you don't enjoy doing, what you procrastinate doing, what you would do for free if you could. And I ask these kinds of questions that will really get you thinking about it in a deeper way, because that will help you figure out what it is that you enjoy doing. And you only need to spend 20% of your time doing what you love in order to decrease burnout. Now, one of the things that people don't realize is that they forget that passions change over time. What you were passionate about when you're 20, you're likely not going to be passionate about when you're 40. And that's okay, which is why it's important that this passion audit be redone, especially when you have transitions in your life, a new place to live, a new partner, a new child, a new job, a pandemic. These types of transitions cause us to reevaluate what's important to us. And when we reevaluate what's important to us, our passions automatically change. So it's very important to do it at those key junctures in your life. You're mentioning lots of questions to ask yourself. And that's what I really love about this book. You can coach yourself, you can teach yourself to be so successful. And you outlined then in the book, there's different elements to success. So you mentioned one of them already, intrinsic motivation. Does purpose play a role then in an individual's success? It's their purpose. It's their reason for doing it, right? It's their why. And it always goes back to your why, because once you are centered around that, you can figure out what it is that you love to do, and then you can go after it full force. So another part then I was thinking about was how do you maintain motivation? You do the reevaluation. And here's a, here's a side joke that I, I tell to people sometimes. What has hygiene and motivation got in common? Oh, what? If you don't do it daily, it's worthless. That's so true. So true. Look, I think you have to have people who hold you accountable. And every single person who I interviewed, the astronauts, the NBA champions, all of them surrounded themselves with a team of mentors and a coach who held them accountable and saw their potential and pushed them. Because sometimes when things don't work out. We are so deep inside the jar. We can't read the label. It's these people who can help us give us that perspective. Now, if Olympians can have a team of mentors and coaches, why did the rest of us think we're above it? We're not. So is there a lot to do with success about your environment? So it could be your home life, your support system, your team of mentors, your friends, all that support system. Is there something about the ecology of that? So it's the whole, is it nature or nurture? It's both. Mm -hmm. But I spoke to, for example, every Olympian who I spoke to did not have other Olympians in their family. The Nobel Prize winners, half were trained by other Nobel Prize winners. Either their direct mentor or their mentor's mentor was a Nobel Prize winner. So they were in that environment. Their environment was supportive and allowed for curiosity. And some of them were first generation, whatever they were doing. So they didn't really have people in their immediate family to ask, but they were not afraid to ask for help. 
and they would find the right people. And even now with their Nobels and going to space and Olympic medals, they still ask for help because they said, I don't know what I don't know. And that's a gap. And I need to help close that gap. So they will seek out support, even with all of their accolades. And I'm going to return to the mentoring piece later on. What I'd like to go to next is that sense of perseverance that you mentioned is one of the elements there. You talk about a strong work ethic, optimistic outlook, failure and rejection, and no means not yet. So I might go into dealing with rejection, if that's okay, because Dealing with rejection, people are going to go, oh my, that has hit me so hard. I'm not sure how I can handle this. Yeah. And that's a big one because rejection is part of life. And I shared the story of Dr. Peggy Whitson, who is a biochemist, and she worked at NASA. And ever since she saw the landing on the moon, she wanted to be an astronaut. Now, not everyone who works at NASA is an astronaut. She worked as a biochemist. And one day they allowed women to be astronauts. And she said, this is what I want to do. And she applied and was rejected and applied again and was rejected. And she kept applying and getting rejected for 10 years. Now, I don't know about you and I don't know about any of your listeners, if they would apply for the same job over and over again for a decade, I don't think, I know I wouldn't. But she was insistent and she said, every single time I was rejected, I heard that as not yet. Let me figure out what I know about NASA and the culture and what they're looking for and how I can leverage that to strengthen my application. And she kept doing that until ultimately she was accepted as an astronaut. And it's a really good thing she didn't give up because She ultimately went on to become the first female commander of the International Space Station, which is a role she held twice. She spent more days in space than any American astronaut and ultimately went on to become NASA's chief astronaut in charge of all the astronauts. So talk about a full circle moment from getting rejected 10 years to becoming NASA's chief astronaut. And I said to her, why don't you just give up? She said, it wasn't a question of if I would become an astronaut. I knew I would become an astronaut. The question was how, what is the strategy I haven't thought of yet? And this is something that kept coming up over and over again. I was telling you about the Olympian that I'm coaching. He said, I knew I was going to get to the Olympics. And then I knew I was going to get the medal. The question was, what did I need to do to get to that level? And he said, I was willing to put in the work. And there were a lot of rejections along the way. But they visualized that success until it was a part of them. And then they focused on the strategy. And is that strategy, the process, it's a bit like that growth mindset you focus on the process, not the results. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It puts them in the driver's seat because if you know that this is what you're going to achieve, what do you need to do to get there? And now I'm going to make those decisions. I'll make those adjustments. That optimistic outlook and strong work ethic then 
I think critically, there might be some people here going, oh, I'm not too sure now is that might be pessimistic. And there's some people going, oh, there must be some sort of hack or shortcut for me to be successful. <laughs> Do you let me know what the hack is? <laughs> Look, <laughs> I tell people success only comes before work in the dictionary. You have to put in the work. You have to hustle. And it looks a little different for every person, but you have to put in the work. And I coach a lot of elite athletes and I said, this is going to be hard work. And they said, one thing I am not afraid of is hard work. I've been doing it since I was a kid. And they know whatever they want to overcome, you can have all the talent in the world. But if you're going to sit on the couch and binge Netflix, you're not going to succeed. You have to put in the work. So it, it is that laser focus as well. And another element you were talking about is that importance of curiosity. That how do they become successful or what is it that they do or how do they get that competitive edge? So they're insatiably curious. They always want to know more. What could I do that'll give me the edge, right? So the scientists, for example, are so curious because they know that one more question might lead to a treatment or cure for something. Are they asking the right questions? Are they doing the right thing? So they're always asking questions. The athletes, I spoke to a Jamaican long distance runner and who was in the Rio Olympics. And he said, I went to the gym in the Olympic village and it's really intimidating. I said, intimidating? You're an Olympic athlete and the Jamaicans are known for their runners. He said, you don't understand. If one of the other people in the gym does one more sit-up or one more push-up or spends another minute on the treadmill and they are in better shape than I am, that can mean the difference between getting on the podium and not getting on the podium. So what do I need to do that the other people aren't doing? So Apollo Ono, who is the most decorated winter Olympian with eight medals, when I interviewed him, people asked me, which was your most interesting interview? And I say, Apollo Ono, because I felt like I was talking to an academic colleague. He knew about positive psychology. He knew about sleep. He knew about nutrition. He knew about physical fitness, mental fitness, all of it. Because he, And he read the books. And he said, I needed to know about all of this because each of these pieces was going to give me an edge. And he was so curious about it. Still is. He's still reading that stuff. And this is it, isn't it? it we go back to the environment system as well. There is a lot about that ownership and accountability to yourself as well to say, I need to sleep right. But there's an element here root of is a sacrifice or what are those elements that the difference is is that they don't overindulge there's something about balance here as well isn't there there is and but they know how to turn it on and turn it off so when they're before a competition they are laser focused and you cannot tear them apart with a pizza if they're an athlete but they know also that downtime is holy and they require that downtime to regroup. And that doesn't matter if you're a Nobel Prize winner or an athlete. It doesn't mean that they go, go, go. They know that they need to have some of that downtime just to function at that same high level. 
And there are lots of resources in this book. Like, for example, if you're trying to focus on something, that Pomodoro technique, we don't have time to go into that, but you never know, Might maybe towards the end. So again, I love this in the book, the balance of Velcro versus Teflon. Talk our listeners to this. I love this. Yes, yes. So this is how you react to your environment and what happens around you. This is a concept from group dynamics. I told you I was sneaking in adult learning theories. So what happens with a balance of Velcro? If something negative happens to you, somebody doesn't respond to your text message, your email, they roll their eyes at you, whatever it is, right? Those negative things stick to you. And if it happens often, it sticks to you and sticks to you and sticks to you until ultimately it weighs you down. You can have a thousand positive reviews. You are going to focus on that one negative review. And it takes up so much of your, what we call a cognitive load. You are so focused on it. It weighs you down. You cannot think about anything else. You cannot do anything else. Now, on the flip side of that, we have a balance of Teflon. All those eye rolls, negative comments, they just glide off of you like Teflon. Now, I used to be the queen of Velcro. I took everything personally. And then I was hanging out with some officers from a military academy, and they were the kings of Teflon. And they just looked as light as a bird. And I said, I want what they're having. So I tried on this balance of Teflon for one weekend. We were at a conference together. William, it was the most liberating feeling ever. And I will never, ever go back to Velcro. I am now Teflon all the way. Because when you don't let things stick to you like Velcro, you have room in your life to do so many other things. You can either be more productive if that's what you need. You can spend more focused, mindful time with the people who you love the most. And I think that's what's important. So I highly recommend drop the balance of Velcro and embrace the balance of Teflon. Let's go through that. Cause I'm like, okay, where do I buy that cloak there? And I go to the shop and I go, I'm looking for a long trench coat with men of Teflon material. It's easier said than done. I think some listeners might be listening in. Is there any tips or whatever? Is that self-talk? I think most people say I am going to be Teflon from now on. No, you're not. No, you're not. I say, try it for one meeting, one meeting, then build on two meetings, then half a day, then a full day, then a weekend, then a family dinner. You have to build on. We don't get from putting on a uniform to the Olympics. There are small steps in between. And it's the same with this. Trust me, this took me years to work on my balance of Teflon. And it started when I did it during one weekend at a conference. I figured, I don't really know anyone here. Might as well try it. And I haven't looked back. It's been at least a decade. What do you think the impact of that is? So how are you different from 10 years ago then? Look, I write books now. Books have Amazon reviews and Goodread reviews, and I read every single one of them, right? Any good author reads them. And I always hope that people love the book. I put my heart and soul into it. And 99.9% of the reviews are incredible, but there's always one or two that are not. 
and I could focus on them and I could marinate and stew on it. But then I wouldn't be having another book coming out if I did that because I'd be so focused on the negative reviews. But then something that one of my professors taught me early on, she said, look for common themes. If you see in the negative reviews a common theme, Mm. that's something you should consider. Otherwise, it's one person's opinion and you don't change anything because of one person's opinion. That's why with academic articles and with books, it's sent to reviewers to review. And then you look for the common themes and you make changes based on the common themes, not one person's opinion. So school is back into that learning mindset again, which is fabulous to hear over and over again. And we'll say, for example, I'm going to go, okay, I'm going to do this tomorrow. But a bit like yourself, as you were saying earlier on, I might be overloaded at the moment or I don't have the energy. Is there a bit about getting your ducks in order first to say, listen, you need to review your sleep. You need to review maybe your goal audit. What would you say? There's so many things that can be done. And I think so often we try to do everything ourselves. One of the things I have learned is I need to focus on what only I can do and unload some of those other things because it'll save me a lot of time and a lot of aggravation. So when I'm able to do that, I'm able to open up time in my day. And I also, one of the things that I have taught people and when I teach time management, if you have sticky notes with a to-do list, you're not going to get to it. You're just not. Mm. Instead, you actually need to block out time in your calendar to respond to this email, to fill out this form, to answer this phone call, to talk to this person. Once you block out time in your day to do that, it'll actually get done. I'm a big fan of that. I color code as well. So yeah, me too. A big fan. And I treat my 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 calendar a bit like a bank account. And when where I'm investing here is going to pay off somewhere else. So if I'm studying a college or reading a book or this lovely podcast that we're doing here. And that brings me to the latter part of the book. And this is where the starting line in one of the chapters is degrees are just starting lines. So we might have people who are more junior in the career. They might be graduates. Why would you say that degrees are just starting lines? I've worked so hard to get here. I know. I paid a lot of money in tuition. <laughs> also. And I have a bunch of degrees, but I think that's not the be all and end all. And I notice that all the high achievers, even those who have all of these incredible degrees, even after they have their degrees, even after they get their big awards, they are still learning because of that curiosity that we spoke about. They're trying to fill in those gaps. So while going back to school may not be right for everyone, there's so many other ways that people can learn. And I think that's what's so important. It's not about going to class. It's about opening your minds up to new knowledge so that you can make connections that other people don't yet see. And that is what is so critical. What are some of the ways? Yes, you can get a degree. You can take classes, go to conferences. I see you have a wall of books behind you, which I am quite envious of because I'm a big reader. You can also listen to podcasts, right? Hopefully your listeners are learning something here. There's, I have a bunch of courses on LinkedIn learning. That's another way for people to learn. You can read articles, webinars. 
there's so many ways to open your mind up to new knowledge. It could be a degree, but that's just one way. And that, and I love that that it's that informal learning can be a major role in your success. And there was an element then as well where you're talking about billionaires and how they spend their time, where the majority of their time is about that informal learning or that sense of curiosity. Generous about that. I thought that was brilliant. Yeah. So Bill Gates and Warren Buffett and Mark Cuban, they are known for consuming knowledge, for reading. They read anywhere from three to eight hours a day, newspapers, articles, books, but it's that's not what made them billionaires. It was making connections that other people don't yet see. And they're able to do that by opening their minds up to new knowledge. So I tell people, for example, in healthcare, we have checklists in the operating room because there was an issue of medical errors. This is all over the world. And the solution to that is a checklist. Now, that solution was found from the airline industry. Pilots use checklists. So a solution that the medical environment had was found within the airline industry, but that's making connections, right? And you can do that by reading about it, by talking to other people. Imagine a doctor talked to a pilot, they would have over dinner, they would have had this solution and then the doctor can bring it back. So it's all about opening your mind up to new knowledge so you can make those connections. And that is what helped make those billionaires so successful. And I think I remember a story, if I'm right, where you were interviewing someone and they were a scientist and you thought they were listening to music as they were looking to a microscope and they were double jobbing. They were actually listening to a podcast. Am I right in that story? That was one of my students. Yeah. He came into my office with podcasts and I said, oh, what are you listening to? And I was sure it was some music or a band or whatever. And it was no, it was an interview with the scientists about his career. And that's when I realized they leveraged every opportunity to learn something new. So speaking about that, then we talked about mentors earlier on. What's the role of mentoring then? And linked with that then is, should my manager be my mentor? So we talked about accountability then. Are there other aspects of the role of mentoring that are important? Yeah. And I'm glad we talked about that because that's actually the subject of my next book that's coming out in the spring. <laughs> the next book is The Financial Times Guide to Mentoring. And the reason I wrote that next book is because I realized that all high achievers surrounded themselves with a team of mentors. And these are people who believed in them more than they believed in themselves. And it was a diverse group of mentors. So it wasn't just people within their field. It was within their field, outside their field, people senior to them at their level, junior to them, retirees. And that is what made them better because they were always asking questions, always seeing what else can I learn? What have I missed? I don't know what I don't know, but maybe these people can bring it to my attention. And when they got into a funk, it was these mentors that pulled them out of it. I can identify with that so much. And what I really like is a mentor can really be anyone. And then I think you give advice then is we'll say, for example, if you only have one mentor, well, what happens if that mentor is no longer available or they move on or they're not accessible? So there's lots of different tips 
that you give there. So let's go back to that question that I had is of, should my manager be my mentor? <laughs> so I think, and I've written quite a bit about this because I get asked, because very often that's a default. And it has some challenges to it. I think they can be your mentor, but they should not be your only mentor. And here's why. If they mentor you well and you succeed, you're going to go on to another job. Now they need to fill that job, which takes a lot of work, takes them away from doing what they're doing. And if there's no one doing it, they don't have a replacement for you just yet, then they need to do your job. So if they mentor you too, that might be extra work for them. So it's this catch 22. So I'm not saying they can't be your mentor. I'm saying they shouldn't be your only mentor. And some people might be reluctant to reach out to people that might be fearful. And is there any advice you would give to people in looking for a mentor? Yeah. So there's a lot I write about that in the book. There's also an article in Harvard Business Review on how to find a mentor when you're stuck at home. The first thing is I want you to focus on developing relationships with people. Now, you would never ask somebody to marry you on the first date, right? So you don't ask your mentor for anything the first time you meet them. Instead, you want to just develop a relationship where you get to know and trust each other. And if anything, I want you to offer something before you ever ask. And when you start to offer, then when you ask for something, you have to make it contextual. So I could say, William, I'm working on this project. I'm stuck on this one area. I know you have expertise in this. Could I grab 20 minutes of your time to talk through this to see what I'm missing? Now, this is after you know I can trust me. I've made it contextual. You know exactly what we're going to talk about. I told you how long I want to talk to you. And now you say, sure, because it's not, can you help me with my career? It's something very specific. And the more the person know, likes, and trusts you, the more they want to talk to you. And that's what it's all about. That's part of being a good mentee, isn't it? You're being organized, you're prepared, it's concise, it's time limited. So it's easier for that person to engage. Is there any other ways that I could be a good mentee? Yeah, I think the mentee has to take the first move right? And really make that first move and show them that you're willing to put in the work. You always want to under-promise and over-deliver as a mentee. All of that goes back to know and trust and see how you can help your mentor. The more you can do that, the more you can do those things, the more the mentor is going to want to help you. Because remember, the best mentors, they measured their success by their mentee's success. So I want to be a good podcast host here and not under-promise and, and over-deliver. And there's an element here of if you were to give advice to your younger self, what advice would that be? Looking back on all your learnings, because there's a huge amount of research gone into this book. What advice would you give? A few things. I would have listened to my late father who said, you don't ask, you don't get. So I would have the confidence to ask people. That's how I met all these people. The second thing is don't let other people define what your success will look like. Too often, I think I was put in a box because some people didn't think that I could 
achieve something. And I said, okay, thank you very much for that information, but I'm going to do what I think is best and go for it. And probably the third thing is don't give up until you absolutely can't do it anymore. Ruth, that was very powerful indeed. I really connect with that, identified with that. And I have to say, reading this book reminded me so much of my learning journey. And I've picked up so much advice there and insights. And if people were to find more about you, how might they do? My website has the resources that I talked about. If they want to learn passion audit or mentoring team or conversation starters, just go to my website, Ruth Gotian, G-O-T-I-A-N, ruthgotian.com. You'll see the resources tab there. And on all the social media, it's just my name, Ruth Gotian. And the book is called The Success Factor. Ruth, thank you so much for joining the Workplace Podcast today. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Workplace Podcast with your host, William Corliss. Our special thanks to this episode's guest for sharing their expertise with us. If you found this episode valuable, please rate and review it. For updates on future episodes and to get in contact with us about any workplace topics, please follow Yellowwood on LinkedIn and Twitter at Different Paths. As always, you can head over to yellowwood.ie for any other information. Yellowwood, your external learning and development partner, provider of executive coaching, facilitation and training. Take a different path to success with your career, leadership, team and organisation.